I would encourage you to read more about it before you actually do it. Uh, and it may even save you from a tricky situation, even if you just use it diagnostically, i.e. you suspect there's a cracked tooth, you then place the composite on top, and now the pain goes away. That is a diagnostic event. So even if you don't think you're gonna go the full hog and use this technique because it's uh, too controversial for you, I think you can still use it as a diagnostic aid. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati. Hello, Petrusarati. I'm Jazz Galati, and welcome back to another episode of the Petrusive Dental Podcast. On this episode today, we're talking about something called the direct composite splint technique for managing cracked teeth. Now, if this is the first time that you're coming across this, it is a completely alien, weird, crazy concept. Like the first time I came across this, like, you know, our natural instinct when we're managing crack teeth is to take it out of occlusion, right? You see a crack? Ah, let me remove it out of occlusion. Uh, but what this technique actually does is the opposite. It actually puts that same cracked tooth in supra occlusion, right? And by doing that, you, by wrapping some composite over the cracked molar, let's say, basically prevents the, the cusps from flexing and therefore maintaining the crack rather than allowing it to propagate. So that's how it works. And then to even add to the controversies of this technique, what happens over time is that uh, that composite is left in the patient's mouth over the offending tooth, the cracked tooth, right? Uh, and then what happens over time is what we call relative axial movement. So um, that tooth, which is proud in the bite, eventually, over time is no longer proud in the bite. And suddenly it's almost um, pretty much in the patient's maximum intercostal position. So that when you remove that composite, you now have restorative space. Now, if I've gone too fast there, don't worry. We've got a whole hour or something with two leading experts on this technique. So if you're uh, listening, if you're my buddies listening from the USA, from across the pond in Canada, uh, maybe you need to sit down for this one, okay? Maybe grab a stiff drink, because this is gonna really challenge some paradigms that you have. Uh, but I think that's the beauty of dentistry. There's so many different ways of doing it, and this is a very minimally invasive way of managing cracked teeth. So uh, I'm not gonna blab on too much about this technique, because got a whole episode on that. I will give you the protrusive dental pearl for today though. It is, you know, it's an obvious one, okay? We're dealing with cracked teeth, we need magnification. So the reason I'm putting this pearl in now for episode 98 is one of the top five most common questions young dentists ask me is uh, about magnification. And specifically it's like, hey Jazz, do I go for three times or do I go for five times? Or do I go for five times? Or do I go for seven times? The answer is super simple, okay? You need to go for as much as you can and as much as you can afford. Magnification is like a drug. I say it over again, it's like a drug. You want more and more and more. I'm on 7.5s now uh, and I do everything with it. I even do children's checkups with my 7.5 magnifications. It does not leave my face uh, and I, I love it. And if there was, like tomorrow, if the same company I bought my loops from uh, released a 10 times, I'd, I'd probably get it, right? Yes, there's a whole thing about, you know, maybe the next step is a scope. And I've tried a scope and I and I enjoyed using a scope, but in, in my surgery at the moment, it's just not feasible, it's not possible. And also the whole thing about being an associate with a scope and that kind of stuff, which I totally respect. I know some associates have their own scopes, which is awesome. But talking, generally speaking, most of us will have a, a good pair of loops. So the pearl is 
get the largest magnification you can afford and you can you think you can sustain so if you are deciding between three and five go for five if you decide between five and eight go for eight you know go for as much as you can one tip that pascal manier shared at the bacd conference recently is uh, and he was he shared it based on the findings of a paper is uh, the probe itself the sh a sharp probe has got like a, the ability to to feel a resolution of like 40 microns okay that's like the resolution of a sharp probe whereas our human eye is at 200 microns eight times magnification is at 25 microns so when we're dealing with crack teeth you want to use something with a resolution ideally superior to your uh, sharp uh, probe so that's just another reason to go for as much magnification as possible and you will adapt don't worry i know many dentists are are concerned or worried about not being able to adapt uh, but i think you will i think everyone almost everyone does uh, and usually most people say uh, most people regret the fact that they didn't go for higher magnification so uh, in a nutshell go for the highest magnification so so important especially when we're looking for cracks anyway let's join our guests uh, dr subir Banerjee and dr shamir Mehta, who are absolutely brilliant pioneers in this field of managing crack teeth with this technique they've done they've contributed to research in this as well so uh, the papers of course will be on the blog uh, and on the protrusive dental community facebook group i'll catch you in the outro come everybody to this uh, very rare live protrusive dental podcast today i'm joined by professor uh, shami Mehta. so congratulations on your professorship we'll talk about it in a second and uh, dr suba Banerjee, uh, two absolutely great people in restorative dentists uh, and i'm really excited to share what they have today about the direct composite splint technique for managing cracked teeth. Uh, let's start by welcoming our, our guests and give them a warm welcome. Uh, Professor Shamir Mehta, tell us about yourself, um, where you're working at the moment. Uh, tell us about the PhD that you, you told me that you recently did. What was that on? Uh, thank you, Jess. Uh, it, it's a pleasure to be involved with this, uh, with this podcast. So uh, yeah, uh, my name's Shamir. So uh, I, um, I do a number of things. Um, Sort of, I'm a I'm a practice owner in Northwest London, uh, and and do a little bit of practice. Uh, I'm the senior clinical advisor to the GDC, with largely with fitness to practice. Um, I am Subir's deputy with the MSc in Aesthetic Dentistry at King's, which we've been uh, working together on for since uh, around 2009. Uh, and more recently, uh, I've been appointed a, a professor in Aesthetic Dentistry at the College of Medicine and Dentistry, which is with the Ulster University. So it's a bit of a, a varied week. Uh, and uh, yeah, I've recently done my PhD in uh, toothware in uh, Nijmegen uh, as part of the Radboud Toothware Project uh, in the Netherlands. Um, so that's that's me out. Yeah, well, I've seen so many of your publications, including uh, Dental Update and a few papers that are very, very practical, very helpful things that you share all the time. So very, very uh, excited to, to share those nitty gritty little details with you. Subir, I was just telling you before we hit the record button that I'd, uh, I, uh, I'd seen you lecture to in a small room in a pub in Twickenham in about 2013, 2014. Uh, you inspired me that evening, showing me what's possible with composite resin. I've seen you in even bigger stages, the BDA on a massive big screen showing your, your beautiful work. Uh, tell us about where you work the moment how much teaching do you do and a little bit about yourself in general oh th thank you very much for a very kind introduction jazz and uh, and i'm admiring your your mastery of the technology i have to say and uh, yeah uh, i uh, my actually bread and butter is in general practice i'm uh, not in ealing i've actually been in the same practice ever since i qualified so i've kind of uh, been there ever since so that's where my bread and butter is as far as my academic uh, uh, areas concerned. I've been teaching at King's for about uh, just over 20 years or so. I used to teach on the prosthodontic program, then I'm the director of the 
MSc Aesthetics uh, program that uh, Shamir mentioned to you. And I've also got my own private teaching academy, the Academy of Dental Excellence, on which we run some diploma and master's courses for uh, restorative and uh, aesthetic dentistry. I'm an associate professor at the Department of Prosthodontics at the University of Melbourne in Sydney. So I've been kind of kind of very varied uh, uh, background academic. I've always been partly an academic, but my, I have to say my bread and butter is in uh, in practice, in general practice, and that's where my passion is mostly. And uh, yes, I, I do remember meeting you in the, in the pub, which is kind of likely location <laughs> to find uh, me mostly, but <laughs> but not, not not all the time. I hasten to add, but yes, uh, I do remember that. Uh, so, so, are you a cricket fan? I'm a big cricket cricket fan, indeed. Yes, and uh, yeah, I used because I remember you were running this um, this um, occlusion course together with the IPL, and I just love that concept, uh, which really caught my eye at the time. But did that ever go ahead, or did COVID get in the way? COVID got in the way of that one. We, the idea was to actually hold an occlusion course and 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 and, uh, and a restorative course in Mumbai, and at the same time to actually combine with some uh, the Mumbai Indians uh, fixture. But then COVID got in the way. So we might relive that at some stage late in the Please, 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 Subir, do that. I will support you fully with that. I will come and I will get as many of the producers right to come with me uh, as possible. I'm a huge fan of cricket. Uh, it was good to see India win today. Uh, I'm sure you watched it as well. But yeah, so we'll, 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 we could easily spend the whole podcast talking about cricket, uh, but we won't because today we're talking about the, the direct composite splint technique for managing cracked teeth. So many people listening, watching right now um, will never have heard of it. Some people will have seen it and heard of it and thought, what the hell is this? That was my initial reaction. No offense. When I first saw this, like this, it just seemed very counterintuitive, right? But then when I actually did it myself in practice and I saw that, hey, actually, this is pretty clever. Uh, and then some people may be uh, well versed in it. In fact, uh, Zane sent a question in, uh, which I'll ask later. So he's been using it and he's, he's found a few challenges with it. So we've got three or four different uh, groups of listeners and watchers. So let's just start with the very, very basics. Um, either of you wants to go first. What is the direct composite splint technique? Well, I'll let Shamir answer that one, actually. Go. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a technique that um, actually evolved. Uh, we were just discussing before the session. It, it, uh, I, I see a lot of, I used to see a lot of cracked tooth syndrome in my own practice. And it used to cause me a lot of difficulty in that, you know, diagnosing was a challenge. Treating it was an even bigger challenge. And, um, you know, many, many years ago, Subir and I both used to teach on in primary dental care at, uh, at King's in Denmark Hill. And I remember one Friday lunchtime, I was sat with him and, you know, thought that, you know, asked him, how, how do you go about managing this? Um, you know, it, it's, it's really, really difficult. And then, uh, you know, we, we got chatting and, you know, how about this? And essentially what this technique is, it's a, it's a minimally invasive way uh, of, of uh, managing cracked tooth syndrome. Uh, and this technique involves placing composite resin over, over a tooth, like a, an, an onlay, if you like, um, in supra occlusion. And it can be used before it's bonded to help diagnose the condition. Um, and then it can be used uh, to help manage the condition uh, as well. Um, and the, the, the beauty of it is that where it's successful through the process of the intrusion and extrusive movements that take place, it creates the room to put a, a definitive restoration without having to do very much by the way of any reduction uh, to the affected tooth. Um, so it, it's, it, it's a way of, of uh, diagnosing cracked tooth syndrome and treating it. 
Let's explore that because what you've covered there is, is in a beautiful way, very short way, you've covered the whole, the whole technique. Let's break it down into its individual components. Um, diagnosis of cracked tooth syndrome is, is a challenging thing in daily practice. Sometimes the pain is difficult to localize. We often rely on uh, biting on cotton roll or biting on a tooth sleuth or something like that. Um, do you still do that as part of your protocol and then you maybe would then use the direct composite splint or would you nowadays go straight for the, uh, for the direct composite splint on the tooth that you suspect may, may, may be exhibiting the signs or cracked tooth syndrome. Uh, how would you go about your like uh, decision making and, and sequencing? Sorry, I was just going to say, Jazzy raised a very imp uh, important point there in that, you know, in practically that's the challenge, isn't it, to diagnose it. And then pretty much when you want to manage it, you want to do something that is not intrusive or not invasive so that if for any reason you got your diagnosis wrong, you haven't done anything to the tooth. And primarily when you look at ways in which you actually um, manage it, they do involve a little bit of reduction and, and therefore putting, a, for example, band around it and, and something like that. So there is that aspect of it. And from a general practice point of view, of course, when you've made that decision to actually do that, it's kind of you've made an irreversible change in the, in, in the tooth. The other thing I think it's important to uh, emphasize uh, is that unlike uh, osseous tissue bone, for example, when you put two bits of bone together and you hold it still enough for long enough, then they fuse back together, the fracture mends. But a fracture in a tooth does not fuse back together again. It is there and it's there forever and it will only increase, never decrease. And so you always manage the situation and uh, to, to, to get, the, get the result uh, from it. So when you come to the diagnosis, one thing you have to remember is that you do have to have a technique whereby you want to minimize increasing the crack that you already may have in a tooth. And albeit that it's difficult to locate, you need to be very careful in the history taking, try and locate it as best you can, and try and arrive at a diagnosis by minimally putting a pressure on the tooth. And, and so when you have a tooth, for example, that you're suspecting that is kind of giving a little sharp pain on recoil, for example, on cotton wool roll or, or tooth. My preference is cotton wool rather than a tooth sleuth because I find it a little bit harder because you don't want to put too much pressure on it. Is that when you use it at the diagnostic stage, as Shamir pointed out, where it's unbonded, the response that you're looking for is that you put the composite over the occlusal, uh, the lingual or the palatal and the buccal. And then you ask the patient to bite and release. And what you're really looking for is a complete elimination of the symptom. Okay, so basically, um, you know, before the, on release that on that tooth, the patient might have reported a sharp response. And now that when you put it on a diagnostic level, it is completely gone. Because if it hasn't, then it is usually indicative that the crack is a little bit further uh, or deeper than than uh, than mm -hmm. this this technique that perhaps uh, would would allow you to control it with. But that's one of the things that I would sort of emphasize on it. And then, it's, of course, this also helps the diagnostic process because if it actually completely disappears, then you kind of know that by providing some sort of cuspal uh, protection and prevention of flexure you're able to get the management uh, starting. Sorry, Shamir, I, I interrupted you at the very beginning of this. So it, 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 no, I, I would have pr pretty much said the same thing in that um, I still would start off with a history and look for you know, the classic sort of pain on biting or release and the sort of acute thermal sensitivity to cold. Of course, there may, may be other things as well. Um, I still do use a tooth tooth. I know that there are you know, sort of issues with the risk of breaking things uh, with it uh, and, and uh, I think that has happened to me once, uh, so that, that there is that there is that risk. But then I would then apply that trial uh, splint 
uh, as Subir described, and then repeat the same test with the with the tooth sleuth to see if if there, if there has been resolution. Obviously, you're looking at the patient's feedback, and I think the beauty of it is that there are so many conditions which could be quite easily confused with cracked tooth syndrome. Um, that this kind of does help in that, you know, if, if the pain still persists uh, with with this splint in place, it just gives a further sort of level with helping to ensure that you've got the right diagnosis because. I think it is quite easy to get it wrong um, with there being so many other things which which could manifest in a very similar way. And of course, the other thing to add to that, I was going to say, is that the evidence shows that when you have a fracture, as soon as you put a burr to it or you take any reduction of tooth, there is a high probability, around about, I think, 26% of teeth, then going into the sort of endodontic uh, exposure, uh, endodontic requirement, you know, uh, pulpal intervention. So uh, so when you have a technique whereby you don't actually open the, have to open the tooth up, there is that advantage and uh, uh, with it. So that was essentially a conservative way of managing something uh, in the process, which could be applicable in general practice. Very much so applicable in general practice. I think. I think the way you've designed it and the, the studies that you, you've done uh, and the protocols that you've written about, which I've read, are very much. Uh quick and easy to, to apply once you know. And that's uh, what this podcast episode is about, is that disseminating that information, making it easy for general practitioners practitioners tomorrow to be able to utilize the DCS technique uh, in diagnosis. So, um, you know, is this a cracked tooth? And if you make that blob of composite, for want of a better word, over the tooth, uh, compressing the, the, the cusps and containing it, uh, and, and then when they give a negative response, you can then confirm with some uh, relative accuracy, that, okay, this is a cracked tooth here, and it was that tooth in question. But that same... Composite, uh, how many millimeters are you aiming for in terms of thickness? Uh, and is it that same composite then you're uh, bonding onto the tooth? Uh, and if so, how? Well, uh, the, here you might find a different opinion between myself and Shamir, uh, because, uh, but saying uh, in my uh, personal uh, experience, what I tend to do is use a, a sort of round about a millimeter on the occlusal thickness that I'm using. Now, do I use the same one? Uh, often not, because uh, sometimes I'm trying to do this very quickly on the diagnosis front, so it's not very neat. And when I'm, I've completed the diagnosis and the symptom has completely disappeared, then I would look for approximately about a, a millimeter occlusally and then uh, go around the sides. Now, one of the aspects that I feel is important, although there has been evidence to the contrary that I have read, whereby to keep this uh, supraocluded tooth out of lateral excursions, my preference at the moment is still to have it out of lateral excursions uh, contact. So essentially, if a canine, if I can add a canine rise to actually lift that out of uh, lateral excursions or uh, any excursive movements, that would be my preference. Uh, rather than having a lateral load. So it's essentially an axial load on the tooth as far as is possible. And uh, I use sometimes a millimeter and sometimes even less than that for this for this uh, phase. I don't know, Shamir, what you feel, but I think you wanted a bit more than that on the, on the clues, did you? Or? Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app 
for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true Protrusive and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do, you want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later, you can get all of that for less than 15 tax-deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We work so hard on this Protrusive team, and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. Yeah, so for the, 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 the trial one, um, I would probably use a, you know approximately a millimeter uh, as you described, sort of flat on the occlusal surface, wrapped sort of, you know, one third of the way down the axial walls, uh, buccally and lingually or palatally. Um, I, I, I've never reused the same, never rebonded the same thing back. So I would always make a, a, a fresh one. My skills with composite artistry are not to the same level of severe, so it would have to be remade. Um, but uh, I, I would no- normally be looking for uh, about a, a millimeter and a half in thickness. Uh, just to sort of, I, I think that we, we we know from studies that we've done with toothware, et cetera, that, you know, that the actual height you build into the resin restoration has a substantial impact on its survival. Um, so I would normally be aiming for about a millimeter and a half, but, you know, once I've satisfied with the diagnosis, then I would, would remake the thing pretty much how Sabir has described, keeping it flat on the occlusal surface and out of contact during lateral and protrusive uh, movements. That's the thing that initially confused me when I first read about the technique, because in my mind, um, only a few years qualified at the time, I thought, wait, how is that possible to build something in super occlusion, but then also uh, have it out of excursions? But then when I actually did it, I found that, OK, when the patient does uh, excurse and you mark it up and you mark up the, the, the centric stop, well, if you just get rid of the lines and keep that one dot, sometimes it just works out. But you also raise a good point, uh, Subir, that sometimes you may need to add a, a canine riser. How often does it just work out and how often would you actually have to add? Um, further anteriorly to to aid that disclusion? It will depend on the occlusion that is at the moment, you know, depending on the uh, the, 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 uh, the existing canine slope and the, uh, the existing slopes, uh, cuspal slopes that you have. So it's, it's very much dependent, but it's something I feel that needs to, to be checked. And uh, and uh, one thing about canine rises, which I think uh, um, our experience, what my experience has been, is that sometimes when you add a canine rise, if you add it inappropriate, in other words, it's too much or it's beyond that... Um, if you like threshold of uh, of tolerance then the, the composite tends to wear off very very quickly whereas when it's within tolerance it tends to last for a long time so if there is some canine wear then it works best you know then it can kind of almost dictate the fact that it's going to be all right and if there isn't then you might just be a little bit prepared for the fact that that composite that you've added to give that disclusion might actually chip away or wear away really, really quickly. And therefore, you'll have to come back to the splint. In other words, you don't put the splint and forget about it. You have to monitor the, the, the response. So I, I couldn't tell you sort of a number on this, but, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and but uh, it's quite surprising that, you know, the number of times you have to raise it on a canine rise are not that many. Uh, but it will really much depend upon whether it's a class one, class two, uh, what sort of, whether it's uh, the lateral guidance is shared by a group of teeth or not. And uh, and whether or not you know the um, there is a, the slopes of the cusp that are involved, so it's be a combination of those factors. So if I just pick up on that, in in the actual study that we did, uh, there was a sample of about 150 odd patients, and Subir is quite right that the the number that we, there was only 12 and a half percent or so 
of the sample where we where we applied a canine ride. So um, it, it's a sort of my experience anecdotally as well. You don't end up uh, placing it that frequently, uh, and that's got a kind of benchmarked in the in the, the study data as well. And that's good. That's what we want as GDPs. We want something quick and easy in that emergency appointment when they've got a cracked tooth uh, and to not have to add another uh, additional thing and explain to the patient um, that that would be quite quite helpful actually to be able to do that. So when I've done it, it's, it has just worked out that on excursion, uh, because of the cusp slopes were in my favour, I was able to avoid it in lateral excursions. Now, can either of you or, or both of you just describe the exact protocol? for? Because a lot of the times, cracked teeth involve amalgam restorations. So um, do you, are you aerobrading the amalgam and then you're using, I don't know, a universal bonding agent and then you're just uh, building it and molding it using a flat plastic or um, is this under rubber dam or is it not? Uh, just describe the, the, the workflow and the, the protocol if that's okay. Well, well for me, uh, if I'm kind of facing a, a, an amalgam restoration, then yes, you can aerobrade the amalgam and then you put it all over the top of it. In the, in the in the first instance, and then that would uh, sort of give you the emergency situation scenario, the control, because then you would actually want that patient back, and then uh, once it is kind of settled down, and you can confirm the diagnosis and the response to what what is uh, what the the therapeutic measure that you have uh, applied uh, is working, and that's when I would take the amalgam out and then proceed to uh, do uh, do the restoration. Hopefully, because I've got the occlusal height, be able to. Uh, restore that. Uh, so that would be my protocol. If there was an amalgam uh, in, in the in the in, in the tooth uh, initially, because uh, usually when you're seeing this, you're seeing it at a time of day when you want to get the patient uh, comfortable and, and relieved. So you kind of uh, I would aerobrade the amalgam and then go over the top. And if it's an MOD amalgam, I would leave the of course because it's just going over the occlusal and the uh, the outer surfaces. The the, the amalgam stays. Uh, but then on the return uh, visit, when the, we are confirming that I would re- remove the amalgam and uh, and, and uh, uh, restore it ac- accordingly. So that would be my protocol of, of doing it. Otherwise, if it was a, a tooth that was completely uh, unrestored and there's no restoration in it, then, of course, it's a question of air braiding the enamel, making sure it's sort of nice and clean. Uh, isolation is good. And, and then, of course, uh, place the um, uh, comp- uh, bonding agent and, and place the, uh, the, um, uh, bond, uh, the composite on top. My personal preference for bonding still is the, uh, the, the three-step technique, or you can use a two-step technique rather than the self-etching ones. That's that works better in my hands. Um, and then, um, and of course, enamel bond is very predictable, as we know. And the more enamel we have, the better. And that will be my protocol for a restored or an unrestored tooth. Uh, Shamir, I don't know if you want to add something to that as well. Yeah, I think mine's pretty much the same. The, I, I try to put a matrix band around the tooth uh, when sort of doing the, the, the adhesive conditioning to try and help make sure that the material doesn't stick to the adjacent teeth. In terms of the contouring, yeah, just a flat plastic or, you know, composite uh, instruments, uh, there's, the you know, there's no merit. There's no, yeah, <laughs> the old finger, the spade. There's no, it, it, it it's kept, it, it's kept fairly basic. Uh, there's, there's, there's no, uh, uh, no, no real attempt uh, to sort of, uh, you know, make it look anything fancy. Uh, and as mm-hmm. you know, as long as it's splints, the, 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 the fracture is in, is in the, the right location, uh, and, and obviously has to be kept flat uh, to try and help sort of putting those lateral loads on the tooth. 
I think it's an important uh, aspect here to also draw attention is, is when you do go to, and it's quite interesting that in, in both my practice, I find as well as I think we found in, in our study is that, of course, when patients get very, very comfortable with this and the, and the occlusion equilibrates after a period of time, patients are very reluctant to have this off again, you know, particularly if this very, very comfortable. So you kind of have this sort of a flattish molar at the, at the back. But if you were to restore and replace it with something like a, a indirect restoration, if you once you have that space, then it's important to stress that the cuspal angles that you want to put in after on your restore on, on the indirect restoration have to be fairly free in uh, in excursive context because you really don't want to recreate a scenario where there's any uh, chance of this these these sort of forces that f split the tooth or uh, create forces uh, like that. Uh, again, developing in your sort of re so looking at it from an aesthetic point of view, you may be compromising a little bit on the uh, lovely uh, uh, cuspal angles and, and fissure patterns for the sake of uh, limiting the load on that tooth, uh, because you really because it, like I mentioned before, the crack actually never heals; it's always there. You're just managing the problem. Right? I'm just going to acknowledge that Vimal has been asking some uh, questions on the live and I will get to those uh, very shortly. But just so uh, in the interest of the, of the workflow, so thanks for describing the step by step. Now, if you've placed this, according to the research you've done, how long do you typically need to wait before you are happy about the pulpal diagnosis and the diagnosis that, that okay, that, the pain's now gone and you can proceed? And also, uh, just describe the, that what you mentioned before, Subir, about the relative axial movement. It's, it's almost as though, in my mind, it's as though the, the supra-occluded restoration and the tooth itself is intruding. Uh, and then that uh, gives you the space to uh, add your cuspal coverage so you can be um, very minimal. Um, is that all that's happening or is the opposing tooth intruding? a bit as well. Uh, do we know yet exactly the mechanics of this? A bit like how does a dial work, right? How does it? How does this technique work in terms of the the relative axial movement? In my view, I think this is a sort of a culmination of several things, and, and it's very difficult to determine how much of one happens in the other. In my opinion, I think there is an element of intrusion extrusion that takes place posteriorly, but the very first thing that happens is a condylary positioning element. So essentially, it's like putting a little jig in, if you like, and the first thing that happens is a condylary positioning at the back, and then that immediately creates a bit of room. As you know, and there's a little bit of room, CO, CO, and CI in a lot of patients, and that's the first thing that happens. Following that, it's a kind of a uh, sort of... Uh, uh, axial movements, both intrusion and extrusion, eruption, over eruption of the surrounding teeth. My, firm, my, my, my thinking on this, and this actually when I used to lecture about it almost 20 years ago in, in places like America where the, this concept is quite can be challenging to, do, to explain and accept, <laughs> uh, the, the issue is really that uh, when you have something like this, that the teeth are coming drifting back into what I would term as their neutral zone, you know, uh, and, and kind of uh, re-establishing their contact according to that. And the fact that there is, a, if you like, an obstruction in the way the teeth that are move uh, back into there. Now, sometimes uh, we find that we may have pushed this technique. So in other words, too high. And so it comes almost back, but not quite. And of course, if you've done it in something in a reversible material, then you can adjust slightly in order to fine tune the equilibration uh, in, that, in that way. But um, um, in a lot of cases, particularly if there's tooth wear, the amount of adaptation that takes place is quite surprising and quite consistent in my in, in my experience. It's very rare that it doesn't. Uh, so uh, 
that would be the kind of uh, criteria there for it. So it's a combination of movements. I think initially it's a condyle repositioning, and then it's a co combination of the intrusion extrusion of certain uh, certain teeth. Uh, and of course, there is no permanent increase in the vertical of the patient at all because it sort of reestablishes back into that's what Dahl's work actually kind of showed. And then you can establish that. But the, the proviso is that sometimes if you've just overshot the threshold in the tooth and some of the teeth do not restore back and uh, the time frame you're looking at is around about the three month period when these sort of things happen, then you may have to adjust the occlusal of the composite. To answer your question as to when you would uh, replace this composite, like I was saying to you, practically, pragmatically, what happens, a lot of patients resist this change. Uh, and sometimes if they do, if you've used a nano-hybrid composite, which is flat and they're not worried about the aesthetics, uh, I have in instances left it behind and then carefully monitored and made sure there's, there's no wear. And to be honest, it's a sort of a safe default position to be in if you kind of control the situation like that. If not, round about the sort of the I would say the month, two month limit is where you would look to sort of replace it if you wanted to. But I have a lot of cases whereby once managed, uh, very few patients do not take it to the next level. It's a bit like some patients when you place the when you used to place the ortho bands, I know some practice still do, and then they they like it and they don't want you to then place the the crown or the indirect restoration because they're happy to have this uh, ugly uh, ortho band on, but it's it's got rid of their symptoms. So very much in that way, uh, Shamir, did you want to add anything to to that in terms of how long to wait in your experience? Yeah, so in in terms of our study, uh, which is obviously based on our own experience, uh, my sort of thinking is. Normally, would say to patients that look, if you're if you're not happy with anything, if there's symptoms, let let me know straight away. Usual re review period initially would be two weeks, and what we found in our study is actually all all the where all the problems were that kind of happened within those first two weeks. So, we had about twenty patients, uh, of which sixteen um, the, the, the they had developed irreversible pulpitis, or or the the, the fracture progressed to a complete fracture. And those patients, we, those were identified fairly quickly. We had four patients who uh, sort of expressed intolerance, and that all happened within the first two weeks. The rest of the sample pretty much progressed to the end of the three-month period, and we did a review at four weeks and at three months. And again, what we kind of found is that all the sort of niggles and the adaptation, that all took place within the first two weeks, yet at four weeks, mm -hmm. these patients were quite happy. And I, I suspect that may well have something to do with the, you know, the, the adaptation, the condylar repositioning that Subir was talking about, together with some central adaptation where the patient sort of brain starts to accept that I've got something that's foreign, which is proud. Um, and it was quite interesting to see that, that the change in, you know, the sort of things that people were complaining about going from the two week to the four week. So usually in my experience, if you're going to see things wrong, you see it pretty quickly. Mm. Yes, and I think uh, Shamir hit upon something quite important that is patient uh, patient management because the patient have to be carefully uh, managed to, to see what to expect here, you know, because to them, of course, you've just explained to them that this tooth is cracked and you're making it high. And the first thought that's going through their mind is, that, well, you know, this is a little little bit contra, counterproductive, isn't it? Uh, counterintuitive, rather. Uh, and, and it's just basically the management scenario because, of course, when you make that tooth high, the, the forces on it, the, the, the general bite forces actually are reduced on it uh, because of the fact that it's a, it's a sort of, a, if you like, an interference on the, on the, um, uh, in, in the thing, uh, in the occlusal system. So there is that aspect. But um, 
Could, could you describe, Sabir, what you actually say to patients, if you don't mind, because you, you touched on it. I'd love for you to just give me like your one-minute spiel on what you uh, warn the patients. I mean, I know Shamir said, if any, you know, if, if any symptoms arise, any issues, you know, let me know. But is there anything else you say in terms of fine-tuning movements may be affected, take some painkillers? I don't know. What, what is your spiel? My, my spiel in practice is once I've identified the tooth and I kind of confirmed the diagnosis with the patient, is there, this is what has happened. I think the analogy that I used about bone fracture, which a lot of patients uh, can identify with, is quite useful in the sense that bone fuses to back together if you hold it still enough, but a tooth is not going to do that. It is a, it is a split and it's split there for life. Is There's nothing you can do about it. And there's nothing, even if I make it short and you bite on it, uh, there's nothing that will happen. It'll come back and erupt and the same forces will apply. You're never going to stop chewing on this tooth. And that's the, that's the reality of the situation, that this is the problem that we have. And the next, uh, the, the next step of that is then, then to going through the, all the alternatives. And it's very important to point out to the patient that all the alternatives that are available, including the, if you like, um, the, the bands, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, for then when you look at this uh, particular option and you're looking through the advantages and disadvantages of it, the reason why it kind of appeals to patients that you kind of say, well, I'm going to put it on right now. I'm not going to cut your tooth. And all I'm going to do is, is probably not even a local that's required for me to do it. And hey, if it doesn't work, I can always reduce it. And there's that added, added factor. And this, of course, you have to throw in into that uh, factor of uh, in the disadvantages is that if I use some of the other techniques, then there is a higher proportion, according to the evidence, of the pulp going necrotic or reading root canal treatment. And and then of course when they get when you get them on board on that is is to just be absolutely plain uh, uh, you know honest with themselves you're not going to like me for this and this is the exact words I use it you know I'm going to do this and you're not going to like me for this and uh, and uh, but I'm there there is a there, there is a reason I I just explained to you the reason I'm doing it you're going to find it, it very difficult to eat uh, and and swallow and find satisfaction to eating with uh, with this. But usually in the in about the two week time, you will start to tolerate it better. And you you're tending not to get pain from it, but more of an annoyance. It's not gonna if it hurts, you let me know. Okay, you give me a call and let me know straight away. If it's annoyance and it's just bugging you, you can't chew properly and you can't uh, you know get the satisfaction of chewing, then please tolerate it. We'll see you in two weeks to see how you're getting on. So that's the sort of uh, the uh, the spiel I, I kind of use. Is I do paint a picture of that we are in a situation which is very difficult to manage, uh, something that is not going to heal. And of course, it's important to also point out to the patient that the situation can escalate because it's a crack. It's uh, we're trying our best to hold it together, but nature is what it is, and the forces are what they are. This is this is going to be an issue. So that's my usual. Uh, the uh, build up to it and preparing them for an uncomfortable time, but for a good cause. And that, uh, and that it's also the fact that it is got a reversible element to it. And I haven't cut the tooth, which is the, the, if you like the, the, the seller of it and it's tooth colored and there's not, you know, then they're not looking at something that's metal. I don't know, uh, Shamir, if you have any other uh, added tricks with that. No, not really. I think it, it's it's the same thing, uh, same sort of spiel that that uh, I would normally give. And of course, where we've used the trial uh, version to to assist with the diagnosis, they'll have already had that experience of what it feels like with having mm -hmm. something proud. Uh, and I know with some of my patients, uh, you know, you, you put it and they'll, no, I'm not having that. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll come back or go for plan B, but I'm not having that. So um, that, I think having the trial thing does also, uh, you know, help with the process of 
attaining the consent. But the, the spiel is pretty much just, this, this, how, how you've described it. Can I, can I ask you, Jazz? I mean, I know you have done this yourself. Uh, what we have said, is there some uh, something else you would say to this? Or how do you, uh, when you do it uh, for your patients, what sort of uh, do you say? Very much the same as what you guys have done, you know, undersell, over deliver, explain that, you know, you're going to hate me initially. I love I love saying that as well, that you're going to hate me, but it's for a better cause. Uh, the, the bone the thing that you said, uh, my my old principal, Amit Mahindra in Oxford, he used to use the same thing. So I also used the, so it was, it was cool to see that you also communicate in the same way to patients. Uh, so very much uh, the same. So I don't have anything to add to that, except whenever I'm explaining the different things that could happen, uh, I do like to quote studies. So, for example, um, Shame, you mentioned that in that study that you did, I think you said 16% went on to experience uh, uh, irreversible papitis or uh, the crack um, becoming, making the demon the truth uh, unrestorable. Uh, and I would say, you know, in, in some studies... <clears throat> This could happen. So let's say one out of five times your tooth, because the crack is already quite bad, is not going to make it. And I like to just give those figures to a patient. Obviously, we can't apply studies to that individual. But um, when it's like a more average case, I like to just give them a few numbers about, OK, well, we're aiming for about this percentage of success rate. Uh, is that a fair thing to do, Shemir, with your position in the, in the GDC? Is that a fair thing or is that, uh, is that incorrectly applying st a study to an individual? Well, I've got to say that whatever I say is is my own opinion and uh, not the GDC's view. <laughs> yes. So let's let's just make that clear. But I, yeah, I, that. I think I, I think um, I think it's fair that uh, to to um, you know when you're looking at uh, trying to attain consent, you know it's got to be done in a, a logical, balanced, accurate, uh, and of course we're trying to do it in a scientific way. So I think it's fair to use studies. Um, and the, as you said, there, there was 16 patients out of the 150, so not quite 16%. So yeah, it was a, a lot, lot less uh, mm. than than 16%. Yeah. But if if you if we look at the the number of uh, the overall sort of uh, 20 patients where there were there were problems, effectively that's in line with what you see with most of the other protocols, which are, which mm. are sort of mainstream. Um, mm. So it, it, in terms of the the success of the procedure. It is in line with what you may expect with, you know, a direct composite onlay or an indirect composite onlay or even a crown. However, as Subir said in the beginning, with crowns, we know roughly a, a fifth of these teeth go non-vital within the first six months. And we also know that the prognosis of a root field crack tooth is also poor. That you don't, certainly that's not what we found within our study. So look, what we would say to patients, what I would say is that whatever of these techniques that you use, there is a chance that is is not going to work because we don't know how deep this crack is and and it's very possible it's hovering right near the pulp chamber or right near the sort of the the periodontal ligament and and it won't matter which technique we use there they're about you're still going to get the same outcome but i think I, I i kind of do like the idea of quoting studies how you do as long as it's articulated in a way that the patient understands uh and and, and sort of can make an informed decision from that I think that's an important point, actually, and Zaz, that you built, uh, brought up about discussing evidence. I think you should be fairly comfortable discussing evidence. Of course, the numbers might not be in ahead uh, there, but you, you generally are quoting, uh, um, you know, quoting evidence, and I think that's important. And I think uh, in, the, in, the, in the level of consent, I would go more towards Mont Montgomery on this one rather than Bolam, where you can actually go to every little bit that and then it's easier to describe because it is a situation that is non-healing and it's kind of if you kind of stress that with with the patient that is this ain't going to get any better i'm just managing the problem and 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 make sure that they're, they're aware of the risk and that is the 
uh, th that is the best way. And I think I often, not just in this particular instance of cracked teeth, but in a lot of treatments I do, I'm always looking at reference, uh, coaching re references in a way that the patient understands. Uh, and, uh, you know, in fact, I just to quote you one, uh, one particular patient uh, for tooth wear, uh, he, he came in and then he'd read all, all the papers that we'd written. And so he was quoting <laughs> me stuff that I'd written several years back, which I actually didn't remember at the time, which was a bit embarrassing. Wow, but, wow. you know, <laughs> so, you know, our patients are very knowledgeable nowadays. So you have to be, uh, be, be aware of that. I mean, I have an episode out with uh, Karina Patel all about I hate cracked teeth. Uh, and we talk about, you know, she talks as an endodontist about management of cracked teeth. And it was a very generic cracked teeth episode. But it's it's one of those things where I can't emphasize enough. Now, you guys, I know you guys have done it as well, where we, we as a group cannot emphasize enough the importance of really over-egging the communication uh, part in someone who's got a cracked tooth because it's something that can be a source of stress for a dentist. That, you know, they intervene and then a condition that was always inevitably going to get worse because of the nature of a crack get, does get worse and then the dentist ends up owning the problem rather than the patient. So um, those, you know, younger clinicians uh, watching, listening, you know, when it comes to communication and, and, and cracked teeth, you have to do your due diligence and have to spend that, even if you're going to run a couple of minutes late, just in a calm tone explain that okay there is a crack it, it may get worse and that's the reality of it we're trying our best but there's a you know this this could very much lead to tooth loss as a worst case scenario um just in the interest of time we're doing you know we've covered so much ground which is fantastic i have got some questions in as well before we do that i'm just going to just uh, finalize the the sort of the clinical protocol element which is imagine you've put your uh, direct composite splint on it's been on a lower molar on a lower first molar let's say it's been there for, it's, it's got past the two weeks point. It hasn't dropped off. The patient's tolerating fine. You haven't, need, you haven't needed to do any adjustment or anything. You see the patient again in three months. And now, would you find that, uh, in your experience, that the bite or all the other contexts have fully established? Or would you find that they're almost established, but not quite? And then the second part of that question is, when you flick off or drill off uh, that composite, how much space do you usually get? So of that 1.5 millimeters, do you find that you have got 1.5 millimeters or around about a millimeter to play with? Uh, in my experience, uh, um, the, uh, the, the, the it varies between patients. By around about three months, I'm kind of uh, kind of finding all the other contacts reestablished. In my experience, is the three months and probably uh, about six months is probably the longest I've seen it personally. But I, I do believe in the literature that it varies, you know, uh, in that. But I think after the three months, if I haven't established all the contacts, I'm maybe looking at adjusting the splint a little bit until I do at that kind of level. So uh, we, we're looking at that. Of course, you know, we, we make a note of what the occlusal contacts were before we started and which teeth essentially hold sim stock, if I was to be pragmatic about it. As to amount of space that's uh, left behind for the ones that we've taken away, um, it's about that. I think it's, uh, you know, you kind of, uh, if you have placed a sort of a, uh, a millimeter, millimeter half of uh, composite on it, uh, the, then by the, and by the time, if you are re doing something in the sort of within the six months to a year limit, then you're probably not seeing a lot of wear of that composite. So you'll get a lot of that space. They never, ever fall off because you're bonding to enamel. So that I've never had a case scenario where they actually uh, fallen off uh, at all because you're bonding very well to enamel and that's fine. That's fine, and that's what you get. And of course, uh, if you are also manage the patient, I tend to sort of prepare them for a crown, which is or sort of rather an onlay, not a crown, which is going to be a little bit uh, sort of bulky uh, on the on the on the platelet and the 
uh, buckle aspect because of that contour, because I really don't want to cut tooth after all of this, is I'm just going to sort of polish the composite off in there. Now, the difficulty comes in how you provisionalize this uh, in that interim that it takes you to make the indirect one. And sometimes mm -hmm. I find I add to the opposing tooth, you know, um, or, uh, you know, you can actually, if you book it with your laboratory uh, soon enough, then you can actually get the only back as, as, as soon as you can uh, with it. Or if you've got a cat cam, I guess that, that that is good. But although I don't have an experience in cat camming it, but that's another way of doing it if you want to do it. The difficulty comes in that interim stage as to, as to managing it uh, for that period of time. But that's my experience on it. But like I say, a lot of patients are kind of, what I've done a lot of the times is actually just contoured the composite into making it look prettier, closely rather than having it flat. And that's a lot of the time that I do. But that would be my observations on, on it. And um, my uh, of choice is uh, gold alloy, but a lot of patients don't want that. But the lithium disilicates, you're really looking to bond onto the tooth again in order to re you know restore the uh, the integrity of the tooth. Uh, and I'll let Shamir take over now with that with, mm -hmm. with that in his his point. Yeah, I mean my experience is fairly similar. Uh, if we go back to the study, um, in ninety seven percent of the sample, the contacts were established, and this is checked with shim shim stock uh, within that three months. So we know that uh, it is with good case selection, it's fairly predictable based on this. It's quicker than what we find with anterior teeth, probably to do with the loading. And that mm -hmm. comes back to the point that you made with the amount of space. Um, I sometimes find that, and it's very difficult to judge whether you've actually got that 1.5 or one or whatever. I sometimes find that the space isn't quite as much as I would have hoped. And I suspect, and this is this is when I've spoken to colleagues who've used this, I suspect there may well be some element of wear of that uh, of that composite, which may also mean that um, you know the contacts are establishing a lot quicker posteriorly than what we see anteriorly, where you're looking at a, a longer time. Certainly with the Dahl studies, they're sort of nine month period, whereas this is a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that there may well be some wear and tear of that composite that takes place. Um, but again, as Subir has sort of alluded to, more often than not, I will just replace it with a with a new uh, direct composite, which will look a little bit nicer than what's already gone uh, on there. Rather than I, I found that the provisionalization and what happens in the interim leads to more headaches, and, and it's a case of you you sometimes learn from from getting it wrong and getting your fingers burnt. So essentially, a direct uh, composite overlay. Yes, essentially. Okay. So you kind of. Uh, just basically refine what you have there because a lot of it is still bonded, especially if you bonded it correctly in the first place. And if you're not really involved in replacing an amalgam and stuff like that, then of course you can just uh, modify the one you have placed. And that's the one with the least risk because then you don't have to worry about provisionalization, not worry about you know going back to the normal cutting. And that's the easiest way to manage it. And if need be, if you want to strengthen it, you can add, add a bit more composite to it on the size, you know, if, if you need to. So that I, I, I have to say that is my first preference to, to manage it um, uh, with it and to resist the temptation to actually uh, remove it with something that's working. Because remember, as we said before, we're managing the problem. Uh, it's kind of mm -hmm. a thing. The other thing to add to this whole management scenario is, and then just to sharing a little bit of my experience here, is that with this scenario and and, and the the thing to, that I uh, specified to my patients is that I'm taking the least step possible to get the result that I want, you know. And and so when you're managing a cracked tooth, it's important to take it in steps like that rather than go straight for the 
uh, endodontics as well as you know start following the crack endodontics and then and doing it sometimes you know and this 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 allows that to happen in a more controlled way Great. And it's great that you mentioned that um, in your experiences, uh, they very rarely uh, come away because they're well bonded. And I think that's partly probably to do with the fact that uh, it's usually in, in compressive load and it sort of hugs uh, the tooth and probably even cures uh, towards the tooth and uh, just thinking out loud. And the other thing is uh, because you've managed the lateral excursions on it, there's going to be less uh, tensile shear forces on it and it'll be dipping into the sort of uh, the cuspal incline. So it very much is in compressive. Uh, have you ever seen any uh, cracks split in three or four, uh, get cracks and, and, and come lost in, in that way uh not not on these no they're not on the ones that uh, we, where we bonded well that's not not been my experience and in the study as well yeah i mean i, I have and in in the study as well that they're probably my ones uh through poor, poor handy work <laughs> but uh not not cracks as such but sort of odd you know bit of marginal chipping or or, or something mm. like that um which is easily repaired rather than having to go in and redo the whole thing uh, I think the key is making sure there's enough height to this, uh, that the height is critical. But there will be some some, you know, areas where, you know, maybe towards a marginal ridge area where, they, you know, that the height isn't quite what it should be. And you see a little bit of chipping there or whatever or something like that. But that can be re readily repaired, but not a case of, you know, a complete sort of fracture where where it needs to be redone. No. Okay, great. Well, we've reached that point now in the last 13 minutes. We'll just take some questions. So if anyone's watching at the moment, either on YouTube or Facebook, and you've got any questions, uh, if you're on YouTube, please come on Facebook because uh, I'm not reading the YouTube comments at the moment. I'm just reading the Facebook ones. Uh, but I've got some uh, questions from beforehand on our Facebook, on the Protrusive Dental Community Facebook group. So question one will go with uh, Shweta. Uh, wouldn't keeping a painful, suspected uh, fractured tooth high add occlusal load on the single tooth and make the periodontum sore and worsening the pain. So this is like the very uh, classic uh, instinctive response of a dentist who comes across your study uh, and your technique for the first time, right? And it's, those thoughts definitely went through my head. But um, I mean, Subir, you already, you already mentioned before, it's a bit like those studies where they've introduced an interference. They found that patients were bruxing less and they were actually uh, chew chewing um, with reduced uh, EMG forces. Uh, is that what you do? Is that what you think is going on here? In my view, yes. Uh, in fact, it's not just uh, Sweta that sort of had this heartache. Our reviews of the article, I know, on hindsight, had the same sort of, uh, <laughs> when it was published in the Journal of Dentistry, had the same sort of anxiety. And and to, just to reassure <laughs> that uh, I did receive the written communication from later on, quite later on after the article when research was published, as to how this phenomena it, it does kind of doesn't have that effect that you mentioned. Uh, two things there: it tends not to happen because of the rationale, the reasons you mentioned, and that's what the, a lot of the studies are showing. And of course, this is also a technique whereby you can actually reduce it as well. So, in other words, you can reduce that composite uh, uh, down. The main issue, the reason why it works, is because you kind of eliminated the primary reason why the uh, the symptoms are there is with the tooth. Um, uh, uh, flexing, uh, so by doing that. But yes, it, it was. It is sounds counterintuitive, but interestingly, how the the actually your own body actually protects against that load. Shamir, anything to add to that? No, no, not not really. I don't really want to go into the sort of physiology of it because it probably don't <laughs> understand it that well. But I, I think, I think when you when you've got something like that with the simulation of the you know periodontal proprioceptors it probably triggers some kind of a reflex, a bit like what Jazz mm. was alluding to, which therefore means that it actually isn't something that gets blasted away. It, 
it's it's odd, isn't it? When when we put our restorations, which at times are, are proud by a whisker, patients will come back. Whereas with this, it's 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 funny that you you go through the consent and you 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 go through all the spiel, and, and you know you've been through it. And on the odd occasion where you may have not done it as well, that person will call back. I think that the psychology has a big role to play as well in that you know the patient knows what to expect and therefore they're able to uh, adapt it. But yeah, I mean the concept. When you look at it in the way that you know Shweta's kind of described it, it sounds it sounds ridiculous. That why why would you do that? But um, <laughs> well, the, the proof is in the paper or the pudding or whatever you want to call it. But saying that, Excellent. coming back to the sorry, just to mention one other study sure. that it's actually the it's not particularly new this concept. In the study, it was reported in the sixties uh, in, in a paper. Uh, the, the reference I forget on the top of my head, but essentially it's in where a particular tooth was put in superocclusion, and and how essentially that uh, the equilibration took place. So it's not really something that's absolutely new. It's been done uh, there as well as other studies. Now, of course, the the bit that's new is this effect that it's a cracked tooth. You know, that's the that's the the, the main challenging bit with with this bit. But for, to answer Swetha's question about the periodontal uh, response, uh, that is not unusual. It actually has been done in previously and, and without in these effects. So it's not. It's the putting it on a cracked tooth doesn't seem to affect that aspect of it at all. Anyway. Great. Uh, next question I'm going to ask is by uh, Vimal. Uh, let's see. I think essentially is. Once you come to the three-month mark and you let's say you've removed the composite and it's got an amalgam inside and you're going to remove the amalgam, this is just general crack management because everyone actually has got a different opinion here. Everyone's got a different threshold. Uh, so both of you uh, gentlemen, uh, how far do you chase the crack is, is the question uh, from Mimmel. So, okay, I'll go first. And this, this is where we, we may differ slightly. I don't know. I tend not to chase cracks. I, I tend not to chase them, uh, try to splint conservatively where possible. It's a question that I get asked all the time, uh, especially from students and colleagues in Australia for some reason, uh, about chasing cracks, uh, including on teeth which are asymptomatic. I tend not to chase cracks. Um, you know, once I know the diagnosis, so take the amalgam out if, if, if that's required and, you know, seal that intracronally and then put, put the extracronal uh, overlay on top. I tend not to chase the crack. I actually, uh, Shamir, I agree with you. I don't either. And I think that uh, kind of, um, you know, we, we come across this when I was lecturing in, in, in the States, it was a similar sort of uh, phenomenon as in Australia. Funny enough, it's half of Australia. I don't know what it is. It's sort of half of it kind of agrees and the other half doesn't. And it's sort of something. But it's quite controversial in, in the Middle East and, and, and Asian countries about this. But um, but no, I don't uh, I don't chase cracks either, uh, providing we have kind of established the uh, you know, the symptoms are controlled and everything. I, I don't chase it no. Uh, with, with me, uh, gentlemen, I went through a phase of uh, at the beginning, very early on in my career, thinking that was the right thing through uh, chasing cracks, just because that's what I was uh, taught by the certain mentors I had or uh, clinicians were, that were uh, teaching me. Uh, then a chap called Pasquale Venuti, who I'm recording with on, on Saturday, uh, he, he gave a lecture. And he said that the, the, the most dangerous part of the crack is the part that you can't see. So all this bit that you're chasing, you're still never going to get to that bit where you can't see, which is the leading part of the crack. You know, and you won't even see that. So why are we weakening the tooth by, by chasing it? So that really um, was playing our mind. And then I was with a group of dentists, very <clears throat> good dentists, and, and they sort of ostracized me for not chasing cracks. So now I've gone back to, to chasing cracks. So I'm glad I met you two and you two don't chase cracks. But there we are. We don't know really what is the, uh, the best way to go. But uh, there we are. Now we know what uh, Subir uh, and Shamir do. Uh, let's see. I'm just reading some more of the questions. 
just for uh, contact points, uh, what bands do you like to use for, to get uh, good contact points? Let's say, uh, Shamay, you're using your um, direct composite overlay technique. Uh, any uh, preference of, of, of bands to, to get good contacts, I think, is a, is a question, really. Yeah, I, I like using the, the garrison sectional matrices, which are Teflon-coated uh, dead soft matrices. Um, I've been using them for quite some time now. Uh, and that's my personal preference. Uh, certainly for doing standard, you know, regular composite work, I've used those as well. Uh, stopped using circumferential bands, uh, which are not good for cracked teeth as it is anyway, uh, a, a while back. Yes, my, my preference is the same. It's a sectional matrix band. Garrison is the one I use as well. Uh, the only thing I would add to that, I use a lot of customized wedging. I don't, uh, I, I very, very much customize the interproximal uh, wedging of uh, of my band whether it be with uh, you know, different types of wedges, whether it be PTFE tapes or, or, or uh, more similar or something, even green stick, uh, just to actually really customize that band. Wow, I've never heard of green stick being used in that way. Pretty cool. They're showing my age here, aren't I? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Excellent. Um, fine. And I've just got one last question. Um, there are a few more from Vimal, but in the interest of time, I'm going to ask one more before we wrap up. Uh, this is from Zane Rizvi, a really talented young dentist. He says, um, I found patients just don't like how it feels. What's the best way to get around it? Is there anything more than just um, patient management and communication and underselling and over-delivering? Or have you got any little tricks up your sleeve to, to make it feel more comfortable for patients? Uh, I, I think the, the explanation as to the, the, the non-invasive nature of it works with me in the sense that, you know, the, all the other things I've got to offer are invasive, you know, uh, and the fact that the most likely that I have to put a local in usually swings it my way as well. They say, well, I don't have to give you a local for this one. What do you think? And uh, and the reversibility of it. And I think the combination of the reversibility and the uncertainty of the diagnosis and the managed prognosis of it kind of swings it in, in, in my favor. But yeah, I mean, mainly it's the fact that I, I, I have to say that the, all the other ones are very invasive. And, uh, and, and But at the end of the day, it's about informed consent and the patient will have to consent to the treatment. So that's important. And they may, if they've made, as Samir refers, some patients don't like the idea of being high and that's, so we have to do something else. Yeah, I guess from my perspective, it's pretty much the same other than what I can do with this is treatment there and then. Uh, whereas before it would be usually be if there's sort of an amalgam or something, I used to splint it with direct composite as an interim measure. Um, I, I can't use uh, orthodontic bands or copper copper rings, or it would be a provisional crown. Uh, and again, mm-hmm. I, I used to really struggle with getting these those teeth numbed up. Um, I remember mm-hmm. when when you know 20 years ago putting temporary crowns, provisional crowns on these teeth, trying to get these teeth numbed was a it was really difficult. And I think patients like the idea of, well, if I get it treated now, and also that, you know, the, the fact is if I can't see them straight away, it may take a week or two, the crack may progress, things could get worse. And I think the, the, the selling point being that, well, something can be done now and look, hey, if you've got problems, come back tomorrow and we can take it off and we can look at plan B. That, that, that seems to be the thing that sort of flips it. Doesn't always work, uh, but that seems to flip it. Uh, in, in, in as as patients sort of saying, okay, fine, well, let's give it a go. The other thing that also is supportive is the fact of the diagnostic element. You know, if you put the diagnostic in the patient mm. themselves experience the, the completion of symptoms being gone, 
which they did experience a second ago, that often sways them as well because it's kind of, well, mm-hmm. that work, the pain is gone. And yes, it feels awkward, but as long as hard as I bite, it doesn't actually hurt anymore as they were doing. Because I don't know if you ever suffered from a cracked tooth, but it's the pain is quite, can be quite, uh, uh, you know, unnerving, excuse the pun, unnerving sometimes <laughs> where it kind of actually shoots into the jaw. And, 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 and so you're almost worried about biting and they suddenly think, oh, wow, I can actually really put pressure and then sometimes that convinces them enough. So the diagnostic element is quite an important element, both from clinically as well as patient acceptability point of view. I suppose the other thing that we have is that uh, is that we've probably been seeing the same patients for a long time, um, which is a mm. commonal theme. And I think that trust element um, probably has a has a role. And that that may well be. I think Zane, you said, you know, with a younger practitioner who may have not had that same level of uh, history with that patient. Uh, and I, I think that trust thing, uh, certainly even when using dial with the tooth wear cases or whatever, I think it it does uh, it is I think has got a role role to play. Very fair point, um, gentlemen. The the time has uh, really uh, flown by. Uh, it's been been really great to have you guys on. I really enjoyed this chat. The hour went really quickly. Just like when I asked you in in February to come onto the show, uh, and we booked for November, and how quick November came by. You two are the bu- the, the busiest people I know. So it's really great to finally uh, have you guys on. Uh, at the end of the show, I usually like to uh, find out where we can learn more from you. If you have any courses, a website, because a lot of people listen and they, you know, what I like this uh, person if they've got anything educational where can I read the papers etc etc so uh, Shamir tell us um, where can we learn more from you are you running courses I know you're really big on toothwear that kind of stuff yeah I mean bo- both both of us teach at King's on the MSc in aesthetic dentistry I, I teach at the College of Medicine and Dentistry on their MSc in restorative um, I, I tend not to do too many courses and stuff outside of that yeah we, we, we do write do a fair bit of writing we've written two textbooks uh, as as well, um, Subir is probably more uh, does a lot more hands on stuff than than what I do. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Apart from Kings, I've just uh, launched my own uh, diploma and master's program with the University of Portsmouth. So, we're recruiting for March uh, uh, March of next uh, next year. So, if anybody's interested, do do let me know. This is a master's in advanced aesthetic and restorative dentistry program, which you can actually do a diploma in with us, uh, where I teach along with my faculty. And then you can take it to a master's with the University of Portsmouth. If you want a, a master's from in aesthetic dentistry from King's, of course, I manage that program as well. I've stopped doing, uh, doing shorter courses. I do lectures here, there, as, you, as you've mentioned, uh, Jazz. Uh, but I, I prefer structured learning. I always... Uh, I mean, I'm always a big advocate of that. Uh, I think uh, the shorter courses fit very well after you've got the sort of the the second uh, sort of uh, uh, foundation of postgraduate structured learning, I think. So you have a structured learning at undergraduate level, then you have a structured learning at postgraduate level, whether it be towards specialist or in general practice. And then from there on, you can really then add to your skills by adding short courses, going around the world and listening to people speak. My, 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 so I'm a big proponent of structured learning at the postgraduate level. I think that has to get the whole picture. Whenever I run short courses, it's very difficult to give the full picture. So we've always kind of done that. And I think that's, that'd be my big, big thing on it. Do it structured uh, and, um, you know, just invest time. It's worth it. It's sort of worth, pays off in the end. 
I still really want you to think of IPL 2022. Uh, and if you can uh, do it uh, in Punjab and not in Mumbai, that will be even better. Uh, so I can be there to watch the Kings 11 Punjab play. Uh, but yeah, gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. You've been absolutely fantastic. Uh, really, really uh, great to learn from you both. I'm just going to end the live video on Facebook. But goodbye, Facebook people. Uh, amazing. So yeah, that was absolutely fantastic. I really enjoyed myself. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, gents. So there we have it, this crazy weird technique called the direct composite uh, splint technique for managing cracked teeth. Uh, check out the papers. It's uh, too controversial for you. I think you can still use it as a diagnostic aid. Anyway, hope you enjoyed that and I'll catch you in episode 99. Oh my goodness, we're approaching 100. I've got something special planned for 100. You knew I would, right? You knew I would. Okay, anyway, I'll catch you soon. Same time, same place. Take care.